All right, if you have a Bible, um, you can open it to Luke chapter 10. We'll be looking at verses 17 to 24, which the Burt Whistles read for us earlier. If you're using one of the chair Bibles, you'll find page, or Luke chapter 10 on page 734 or so. Luke chapter 10, verses 17 to 24. The college I went to didn't have a f- great football team. Bucknell uh, wasn't a large school either, so our stadium was small. And a little bit like our room this morning, the um, one tier of bleachers on the one side of the field was for the home team and their fans. And there was another tier of bleachers all along the other sideline, and that was for the visiting team. And uh, if we were playing a school which wasn't too far away, sometimes there'd be a good number of, of visiting fans who would come to cheer for their team and fill the, the visitor's side. And if their team was winning, which happened far too often, they'd be cheering like crazy over there on the other side. But then if the tide turned and we scored a touchdown or we forced a turnover, that side would become quiet and our side would erupt with cheers, Right? You've been to a football game, that's what happens. Well, that's what today's passage reminds me of. It's about the great reversal of fortunes that Luke has been talking about all through his gospel. When one side stops cheering and the other side begins. We first met this theme of of a great reversal uh, just about a year ago when we began looking at the book of Luke and we looked at Mary's famous song, her Magnificat. It begins, my soul glorifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. In this song, Mary rejoices that that God is bringing about a great reversal epitomized um, in the fact that he chose a peasant girl like her to be the mother of his Messiah King. And Mary foresees that if if this is how God is is bringing about his salvation, announcing the good news to to lowly shepherds and causing his son to be born into a manger, then God is turning everything upside down. For so long, the rich and the powerful had had their way. They had gotten the good stuff. They had called all the shots. But now, finally, Mary realizes God has sided with the poor and the oppressed, with people like her. And so she rejoices. He, God, has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent away the rich empty. As Luke's account um, of Jesus' life and ministry unfolded, we saw this great reversal Uh, begin to play out in the early chapters of Luke. We saw Jesus reach out to and restore lepers who were socially and religiously outcast and tax collectors who were despised and sinful women whose reputations kept them far from polite company and possessed lunatics who couldn't function in society. All of these and more Jesus restored and brought close back into God's family. Meanwhile, Jesus began to run into trouble with the good citizens of his day, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the political rulers like Herod, and even the faithful church people of his hometown. Well, here in today's passage, we see this great reversal continue to play out as the tide turns in favor of the home team and they begin to celebrate. And 
So in today's passage, we see that it's full of celebration, of rejoicing. In verse 17, the 72 disciples whom Jesus had sent out on a mission come back and they're rejoicing. In verse 21, Jesus is full of joy and he praises God. Later in the verse, Jesus speaks of God's pleasure. And in verse 23, he tells his disciples how blessed they are. This language is, or, or this passage is full of, of celebratory language, which is fitting on this, the third Sunday of Advent. Because the third Sunday is the day that we light the pink candle to represent the joy that we feel. That's what the pink represents. As we get closer to the day that, that we'll remember Jesus coming into the world to, to kick off this great reversal that we've been learning about as we've been studying the book, of back, uh, the book of Luke this past year, we light the candle of joy. So so what is all this rejoicing about in today's passage? What's going on on the football field that prompts this, this eruption of celebration? Well, up to this point in Luke's gospel, Jesus had been playing the game almost single-handedly. But just recently, when we got to chapter 10, we saw that Jesus has just fielded a team of 72 disciples. Jesus sent out 72 workers into the harvest field to visit all of the towns he would be going to, to find a person of peace there, to stay with and build a relationship with that person's family, and from that person's home then, to heal the sick, to tell people the good news, that the kingdom of God was arriving. Now, in today's text, the 72 have, have come back from this mission and they are bubbling with joy as they report their experiences to Jesus. Their mission, it seems, has been a smashing success. Perhaps people in the towns they visited gave them a warm welcome and were receptive to the news and the message they brought. And, and now maybe these disciples can't wait to take Jesus to these towns and to introduce him to the new friends they've made there. Perhaps God even enabled them to give or to, to help people greatly by, by healing their diseases by miraculous means as Jesus instructed them to do. But none of that is what the disciples focus on when they give their report to Jesus. Instead, what they're rejoicing about is how even the demons submitted to them in Jesus' name. Talk about power and victory. As these disciples wielded the name of Jesus, even the spiritual powers retreated before them. And so they're rejoicing, and, and when Jesus hears this news, he begins rejoicing too. But what exactly does it mean that the demons submitted to the disciples? I mean, what did that look like in concrete terms? It's, it's actually sort of spooky when you stop and think about it. The dark spiritual realm isn't one many of us are familiar with, though some of you are. But, but if you step out of the time and the place that we live in, where we've been so influenced by the Enlightenment, uh, you find that most people in the world know exactly what's going on here. Let me tell you a story to illustrate. This is a story that was written up in Christianity Today magazine a few years ago by Dr. Brenda Salter McNeil, a professor at Seattle Pacific University. She writes, Back when I was a student, um, I met a fellow student from Ghana, West Africa, who was completing his PhD in the School of World Missions at Fuller Theological Seminary. 
During one of his trips home to Ghana, he attempted to share the gospel with several people who lived in his community. Although they listened respectfully, no one turned to Jesus Christ. He later learned that they were intimidated by a witch doctor who lived nearby. The witch doctor kept a symbol of his authority outside his home, a lattice basket filled with water that never leaked. My friend decided to pray that God would empty that basket. He stayed outside the home of the witch doctor and prayed all night that God would demonstrate his power. At some point, he fell asleep. The next morning, though, he was awakened by a commotion. The basket was empty. That town saw a mass revival as people learned about the God who caused the water to come out of the basket. There had been a power encounter, and God had won. She goes on, We who were raised in the West with the West's rational worldview can try to explain that story away. But I believe we need African Christians to teach us how to preach the gospel in power. The West is overwhelmed with information for information's sake and wary of truth that is rational yet impotent. Well, that's the sort of power that the 72 disciples have experienced by using the name of Jesus to, to break through enemy barriers, to liberate people and set them free, and no doubt to cast out demons who had kept people bound in lies and deceptions, addictions, delusions, and muddled thoughts. And these disciples are very excited about it, and they're rejoicing. And Jesus is rejoicing too. The tide is turning in the game, and now the home team is celebrating. Well, here's the thing. What we rejoice about shows a lot about what side we're really on. A lot of times I've sat down in front of the Super Bowl, and neither of my, none of my favorite teams are playing. And so I'm not sure which team I'm going to root for as the game begins. But at some point in the game, it seems like I always find myself cheering and celebrating the outcome of a certain play. And at that point, I figured out which side I'm on, which side I'm rooting for. So let's look further at this passage and see what it can tell us about the two sides in this contest and which side we may be on. And maybe we could turn up the heat a little. Am I the only one who's getting chilly in here? Yeah. The room overheats and then we turn off the heat because it's too stuffy and, and then we get cold. So maybe we can find a happy medium. Um, yeah, let's turn both sides on. <laughs> All right, so first, uh, let's consider um, what we learn about the side that Jesus refers to in verse 19 as the enemy. We all believe in some sort of enemy. We all, uh, as we live in this world, we see the pain and the trouble, the uh, war and the hunger, the bondage and the oppression. And we intuitively sense that there must be some sort of enemy behind it, some adversary we can blame it on. Um, as humans, we almost instinctively can't define who we are without also defining who our enemy is. And, and so in the U.S. psyche for many years, it was the communists who were the enemy. For liberals, it's, it's ignorance and lack of education that's the enemy. For conservatives, it's big government that's the enemy. For those who consider themselves open-minded and tolerant, it's fundamentalists and bigots who are the enemy. 
Even pacifists, ironically, often have an enemy. Usually it's the military establishment. Well, what did most people in Jesus' day think the enemy was? Well, they thought it was the Roman Empire. Rome was oppressing them. Rome had taken away their freedom. Those of you who are Monty Python fans, if you've seen uh, the movie The Life of Brian, you might remember the angry Jewish rally, rally cry, what have the Romans ever done for us? And yet Jesus doesn't buy into this popular patriotic perception of the enemy. No, Jesus thinks it, that perception doesn't look deep enough. And so he tells his followers in verse 18, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. I have given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions and to overcome all the power of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. Who does Jesus identify as the enemy? Satan, the devil. In the biblical worldview, Satan is a powerful, evil, spiritual being, probably a, a mighty, angelic creature that God had created, but who grew prideful and rebelled against God, taking a bunch of lesser angels to the dark side with him. And, and these are what the Bible calls demons or evil spirits. And the Bible sometimes symbolizes Satan as a serpent and his demons as snakes or scorpions. So here Jesus says, um, that, uh, that he has given his followers authority to trample on them and, and to overcome all of their power. That's what his disciples have, have just discovered that they've been able to do on this mission in Jesus' name. And Jesus says, yes, that's right. And I've given you the authority and the power to keep doing it. None of these creatures will be able to harm you. None of these spirits. After all, Jesus says, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now, what does that mean? Well, Jesus is actually quoting an Old Testament scripture here, Isaiah 14. Isaiah 14 is, is the same prophecy that Jesus quoted back in verse 15, which we looked at last Sunday. When Jesus had warned Capernaum, and you, Capernaum, will you be lifted up to the heavens? No, you will go down to Hades. This is from Isaiah 14. It's, it's an interesting prophecy because it's a taunt against the king of Babylon, who was the one in the ancient world um, at one time who uh, w was the greatest and most glorious of emperors. The king of Babylon was also notorious for his pride and for his haughtiness, as well as for his reliance on pagan or even demonic spirits for his success. Well, in Isaiah's taunt, God is saying to this king, oh yeah, you think you're so great? Well, here's the lament that everyone is going to sing at your funeral, at your destruction, when I bring you down from your lofty pedestal. And the lament uses such exalted language to talk about the, the king lifted up to the splendor of heaven and, and then hurled down by God like lightning to the depths of hell that, that lots of interpreters have thought, hey, I think there's more going on here than just the king of Babylon. It, it sounds like Isaiah is describing the deeper, more diabolical spirit, which is no doubt behind the king of Babylon, Satan, the devil himself. And so... 
Do you see the picture that Jesus is painting here of the enemy by quoting Isaiah 14? The king of Babylon, Satan and his minions, and even Capernaum, going back to verse 15. Any person, any power, any culture which lifts itself up in pride and thinks it's great, thinks it deserves to play God and to to call the shots for this world, thinks that it has a privileged place in the order of things. And notice it's just not, it's not just the obvious enemy out there. It's just not the Roman Empire in Jesus' day. No, it's, it's a deeper influence, a more insidious spirit that can even be found much closer to home. Even in a devout Jewish city like Capernaum, according to verse 15. Capernaum was where Jesus had lived after he left Nazareth. And it was where several of his disciples were from. And it was where Jesus did much of his ministry and many of his miracles. Capernaum was the Bible belt. It was the good church-going folk. And yet Jesus says in verse 15, as soon as you get prideful about that and you lift yourself up as God's special folk who can do no wrong, then watch out because God will hurl you down like the devil who shares that attitude. So do you see who the enemy is? Jesus develops it further in verse 21 when he rejoices, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. Did you hear that? God has hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to little children. This is the great reversal again. The wise, the learned, those who depend on and take pride in their knowledge and their education and the credibility and standing that it gives them, God has hidden his salvation from them. And God has revealed it instead to those who are like little children, who are simple, humble, weak, even naive maybe. People like the 72 who Jesus sent out like lambs among wolves with no money, no bag, only the shirt on their back. With nothing but the simple message that God's kingdom was coming near and the name of Jesus, which if they had faith could heal the sick and send the spiritual enemy into retreat. It reminds me of the Lord of the Rings where it wasn't, the mighty men or the fierce dwarves or the valiant elves who were able to save the world. Rather, it was simple little hobbits who in the end shaped the fortunes of all. But even hobbits can be corrupted, right? Even the little ones are prone to sin. So in our passage today, we see that the 72 come back from exercising Jesus' authority and, and they're starting to feel a little powerful. They're feeling really high on themselves. After all, all their life, many of them had been nothing important, just trying to survive, just simple people with no academic degrees or managerial responsibilities. But now Jesus has given them a purpose, a grand purpose, a a huge responsibility, and, and they've stepped out in faith and they've tried their hand at it and it's gone smashingly well. Wow, they they even have power to to command evil spirits and and the spirits submit to them. And so this new power is a little intoxicating. 
And really quickly, pride no doubt starts rising in their hearts. They, they're probably thinking about their new career trajectory and, and what this is going to mean for their future. And so Jesus nips this right in the bud because he knows that this spirit is of the enemy. Don't rejoice, he warns, that the spirits submit to you. Rejoice rather that your names are written in heaven. Don't rejoice in your accomplishments, your, your successes, your, your ministry, your achievements and attainments. Rejoice rather in the fact that God knows you and holds you so close, so close that he's got your name written down in a special place. Did you hear that? Written in heaven. If you are one of Jesus' little children, then God knows you by name and has you close to his heart. We all know about writing down the names of those we love, right? When we were in junior high, we'd write them all over the back of our notebooks with little hearts around them, or, or maybe we would write, write them you know, on our desk or the laboratory wall. Well, well, God evidently has a place in heaven where he writes the names of his beloved. Jesus says, rejoice that you're loved. Don't rejoice in the power I choose to give you or exercise through you. Because to rejoice in power and success or in being great and learned is to find yourself siding with the enemy. All right, so that's the enemy. One side in the contest. Second, now let's look at God, who's the other side in our passage here. God, unlike Satan, does not flaunt or serve himself with his power. Rather, God uses his power and gives it up for the sake of others. That's what Jesus was all about. And that's why the great reversal. That's why Jesus came to side with the poor, the marginalized, the simple, and to bring down the rich, the powerful, the learned. That's why you can't know God by, by searching him out with your best intellect and, and, and education because he hides himself from the wise and learned. To know him, you have to humble yourself and become like a little child. For to such people, God delights to reveal himself. Listen to verse 22 and listen for all the father and son language, which expresses that God and Jesus are in this great reversal together. Jesus says, All things have been committed to, be by, committed to me by my Father. No one knows who the Son is except the Father. And no one knows who the Father is except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. So who can know God the Father? Only those who the Son, Jesus, chooses to reveal him to. This is the way... Father and Son both operate. Now, back in the days of Jesus, there were no career counselors. If you were a young man, you didn't need to figure out what you wanted to be when you grew up because almost everyone did whatever their father did. Sons took over the family business or trade from their father. Maybe the father had expertise in, in craftsmanship or, or a secret recipe or, or method of, of producing whatever they produced. And these family secrets would be passed down father to son, generation after generation. And that's the context here when Jesus says, I'm the son. 
I know the Father best, and so he's committed all things to me. Because he knows that I'll handle his plans according to his intentions. And so in Jesus, we see God's way. Jesus is born to a poor, insignificant family and is placed in a manger. Jesus grows up and surrounds himself with outcasts and misfits. He has no place to lay his head at night. Because Jesus knows that this is the way the Father goes about his work. Not by achievement and self-sufficiency. Not by getting ahead and figuring things out. No, God is hidden to those who insist on this approach. Because you can't figure out God or, or climb up to heaven to get the answers you want from God. The only way you can know God is to come to him humbly with empty hands and ask him to have his son reveal him to you. It's the great reversal. It means you won't find God in your next promotion. You won't find God by taking a philosophy class or by reading books of some great religious teacher. You'll find God only one place, and that is from his homeless, threadbare son who has the authority to reveal God to whoever he wants and chooses to reveal him to those who become like him, humble, insignificant, like little children. Now what does this mean for us who live in Westchester and Putnam counties? <laughs> we're wealthy, we're, we're educated, we're sophisticated. We've worked hard to, to achieve and to excel and to reach the top. Which means, according to this text, we've surrounded ourselves with fans who are cheering for the opposite team. And if you're like me, you find yourself cheering along sometimes. So how do we know if we're really on God's side or if we're on the enemy's side? Well, I think today's passage is telling us that our true allegiance will be revealed by what we celebrate. Do you celebrate every bonus, every promotion, every degree, every career advancement, every honor or trapping of success? If so, why? Is it because you've been using the gifts God has given you to serve God the best you can? And now God has entrusted you with new resources and responsibilities to serve his kingdom better. Or do you celebrate these things because you are now insulated further from the fear of not having enough? Which of course means you won't need to trust God as much. Yay! Do you celebrate these things because your power has increased to control your destiny and get your own way? Do you celebrate these things because you feel like now you're indeed becoming somebody? You're climbing the ladder. You're increasing your status. If that's why you're rejoicing, and part of us does, right? If that's why you're rejoicing, then, then Jesus is warning us here, you and me, that, that we are in grave danger. We are cheering for the wrong team. We're cheering for the side that Jesus has come to bring down so that he can lift up the lowly. Now that's not to say we shouldn't use our brains or that God can't use our education or our talents that he's given us for his purposes. 
Certainly in the Bible, we see God using a, a talented guy like a King David or, or a Joseph or, or a Daniel for God's purposes. But David first had to live as a hunted fugitive in the wilderness. And Daniel and Joseph both had to get ripped from their homes and their families and get shackled and exiled into a foreign land before they could serve God so well. These leaders had, had to get into them enough of the attitude and disposition of a little child, enough brokenness, enough humility into their characters to be able to wield the kind of influence that God used them to wield. And they're not the exception, they're the rule. We, we can't talk about using our success and our education and our money and our influence for God until we've given them up and sided with the lowly and become like a child first. The Bible commentator uh, William Barclay comments on a man who had done this. Sir James Simpson, the great 19th century Scottish doctor and medical uh, leader, um, who, among other things, pioneered the use of chloroform as an anesthesia. Barclay writes, It will always remain true that a person's greatest glory is not what they have done, but what God has done for them. Let me repeat that. It will always remain true that a person's greatest glory is not what they have done, but what God has done for them. It might well be claimed that the discovery of the use of chloroform saved the world more pain than any other single medical discovery. Once someone asked Sir James Simpson, who pioneered its use, what do you regard as your greatest discovery? Expecting the answer, chloroform. But Simpson answered, my greatest discovery was that Jesus Christ is my Savior. Now let's assume that this wasn't just a cute rejoinder to score a point for Jesus. Let's assume that Simpson really deeply felt this and lived this way. Then Simpson was rejoicing with God's team. Can't find the rest of my notes, so I'll just uh, make it up. <laughs> Simpson was rejoicing with God's team. So as we come to this third Sunday of Advent, this time where we light the candle of joy, it's a time to ask ourselves, what are we rejoicing in? What are we finding joy in? Which will give us a good idea of whether we, like Simpson, are on God's team or not. So let's pray. God, we who live here, as you know, struggle with this. There are our brothers and sisters, Christians all over the world, living in poverty and oppression, some of them driven out of their homes into exile, um, some of them just not having the kind of opportunities or freedoms we have enjoyed here. And they come to your word and they read about the great reversal. They read Mary's song at Christmas time and they instantly know it's great news for them that you are bringing down the, the proud and the, the rich and the powerful and you're lifting up the lowly. But God, we live among 
the proud and the rich and the powerful. We have been trained and conditioned by them to value the things they value. And we've told ourselves that we can use all those things for you, and, and yet we confess to you that often it's really more about us than it's about you. And so I pray this Christmas that you would root your priorities, your way deeply into us, that you would make us like children, that you would help us to wrestle through in our own hearts um, what it is that we celebrate and that we would come to celebrate you and that we would come to find ways to celebrate alongside the poor, the needy, those who are little children because spiritually that's the only way we come to you. Teach us your heart. Teach us to celebrate what you celebrate. And thank you so much for coming for us. Amen.